are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Did I'd you ask like how, how you are, but they can't answer. Yeah, exactly. And did you see how I acknowledged everybody else finally? Yes. I'm yeah. so proud of you. Thank you. Starting Look to come at around this. to I'm it. I'm making you like a welcoming <laughs> hostess. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I'm changing you. <laughs> Well, we are back for part two. Here we go. So what do you got for part two? Because you left it on like the biggest cliffhanger last I did. Week. I did. Because so just to recap and but I would like to say that if you did not listen to part one, go back and listen to part one because my recap is just going to be like like less than cliff notes. But basically... This case happens on July 31st, 2008. There's four teenagers that were just having fun on a summer day at a local watering hole. Watering hole? Watering hole is a bar, isn't it? Yeah. At a local... (laughs) Recreation area. Yeah, swimming hole. At a local swimming hole um, in the Menominee River, which the train bridge... The East Kingsford train bridge sits over and it connects Michigan to Wisconsin. So there's two sides. One bank is Wisconsin. One bank is on Michigan. And this is just like a popular place where teenagers in that area of Iron Mountain, uh, Michigan, they love to go swimming. So what happened on this day on July 31st, 2008, is these four teens were walking up the embankment to go jump off one of these rocky cliffs near the bridge. And as they're walking up, they are stopped in their tracks by this camo decked out, just guy with a rifle. And then like seconds later, all chaos breaks out. So where I left you guys off in part one is the police were able to identify the shooter. Um, Scott J. Johnson walked out of the woods from where he was hiding the next morning. So on August 1st, let me tell you a little bit about this grade A douche canoe, Scott J. Johnson, because let me tell you, once you hear about this guy and his life, it's going to infuriate you to no end. So let's get into it. In 2008, when this crime occurred, Scott was 38 years old. He had no job and he was living off of his mother in Kingsford, Michigan. By the way, he had been living off and with his mother for the past seven years. Really? At, uh, at 38 like years old. It's, uh, that's like if tomorrow I decided to quit my job and move in with my parents and just do nothing. Yeah. And I'm sure you're wondering, oh, well, probably something really horrible happened to him that he then had to go back and live at home. No, uh, -uh. nothing horrible happened to this guy, but this human piece of trash wants to blame everything on everybody else. And sadly, I feel like we see a lot of this in, you know, in criminals, today. And I don't know if we see a lot of it or we know they're more vocal because, you know, they do interviews and you hear a whole bunch about them. But I feel like they tend to like want to blame everybody but themselves. Some of them do, not all of them. I'm generalizing, obviously. But anyways, 
Scott is one of these people where nothing is his fault. His early life, like I said, was not horrible. Scott grew up in Kingsford, Michigan. Um, he said in recent interviews after the crime that he feel, felt like he was, quote, shortchanged when it came to fathers in his life. Um, his biological father did leave Scott and, the, and his mom when he was an infant, but his mom eventually remarried and pretty quickly. Now, the guy she remarried was a drunk. He drank a lot, but Scott's mom remained completely devoted him uh, devoted to him up until his death, and she seemed to really love him. He never really did anything bad to Scott except be kind of like a maybe a poor role model of what a husband is supposed to be. Do you know what I'm saying? As far as just drinking and yeah, having he those just, types of devices. I, he wasn't abusive, but no. he just wasn't like stellar. No. Exactly. So um, despite that, Johnson, Johnson, Scott really did have a really good childhood. He loved hunting and guns, which wasn't really unusual for a boy his age growing up in that vast wooded area of Iron Mountain, Michigan. When he was nine years old, he did receive his first gun from his mother. It was a single shot 20 gauge gun and he loved it. Like Scott was obsessed with guns from the very beginning. But again, for the purposes of hunting, which was totally normal for that area, right? And for little boys in that area. A few years later, he was gifted another hunting rifle. And by all accounts, Scott was just your typical teenager. Uh, never really got into any trouble, was fine with his peers. He actually graduated at the top of his class from Kingsford High School, okay. which is the same high school that later, you know, years later, his victims would go to as well. Um, after high school, after he graduated, he joined the army and he ended up in Louisiana for basic training. He was assigned to a base at Fort Polk and that's where he met his future wife, Teresa. They met at a local Baptist church. So Scott had always been going to church. He went to church with his mom back when he lived in Kingsford and this kept going even when he was in the army. Um, Teresa's father was also in the army. So they had a common interest there and kind of a common lifestyle. And so they dated and then got married in 1991. Everything during their dating life went perfectly fine. Teresa had no complaints, but it was after their marriage where things kind of like completely go wrong um, with Scott for whatever reason. So Teresa reports that the first year of their marriage was perfectly fine. I mean, they had their ups and downs, but she figured she just attributed that to, you know, your first year as a newlywed, right? You're, it's a new role. You're kind of figuring things out. Yeah. They, and I'd swear everyone says the first year's yeah, the hardest. Yeah. Uh, they quickly had their first child together. And it was after that, that Scott started to become in, like controlling and abusive, but it started out in like kind of really small ways. And I feel like in reading all of this about Teresa and Scott, I kind of get the feeling that Scott always had these tendencies to be controlling or abusive, but he was able to like wrap it up in a different 
way. Do you know what he I'm saying? He made them appear as weird personal quirks. Exactly. Instead of being controlling. Mm-hmm. So like where I might have a quirk that I prefer cups to be stored in the cupboard upside down. <laughs> I'm completely making something up that I can think of. I'm not like sitting there and and penciling out a stencil of where the cups should go and labeling it and like You don't do that? That's how all cups should go. I don't have a schematic for my home cupboards. So yeah, he had some controlling and abusive kind of characteristics, I feel like, that she noticed, but I don't think they were as obvious until they started getting progressively worse. And in 1994, when he was finished with the army, they moved to Shreveport, Louisiana. And all of a sudden, it's almost like these big life changes kind of trigger Scott and escalate and bring out like the worst behaviors in him because after they moved to Shreveport the behaviors escalated big time he would constantly tell Teresa how stupid she was how worthless she was he even no he even started to threaten to kill her what like off and on yeah when um, their son was about five years old, Teresa became pregnant again, but this time with a girl. And when she was around five months pregnant, he pushed her down the stairs because she forgot to mail out the Christmas cards. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. As parents, Teresa says that her and Scott were never on the same page. Like when it came to discipline, when it came to, you know doing that dance between good cop, bad cop. Like they never, they did not have common ground when it came to how to raise their kids. And as a matter of fact, that led to a huge incident in 1995. On a particular, so in 1995, Teresa came home. She had been running errands at some point and she came home to find Scott inside the house while their daughter who was a toddler at the time, I think she was two or three, was just left alone in the backyard by Scott. Like, it's not like they were playing in the backyard and then he went in the house super fast. No, the toddler was outside and Scott was occupied doing a project inside the house. Like, completely didn't even know he had a daughter. Yes, like not even checking on her, nothing. So when Teresa came home to find her toddler alone in the backyard, she confronted him about it. And she said that Scott got so angry that he threw the family cat against the wall. Oh, my God. So hard that the cat was unconscious. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. So Teresa. Teresa went and grabbed her daughter from the backyard. And when she returned back into the kitchen to where Scott was, he had a rifle pointing at her chest from eight feet away. And she's holding their daughter. I just, and she reported that Scott said something like, look what you made me do. No. That's not how this works. Well, you're going to learn that this is how this works in Scott's world because Literally everything is everybody's fault but Scott. Oh, my God. Yeah. So 
I mean, more power to Teresa. I don't know how she put up with it for up until that point. But after that, she was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm leaving. And she took her two kids right away and she left for Ohio where she had some family. I'm glad. Yeah. Two weeks after she arrived, she filed for divorce. Good. Do it. Yes. Which can I say high five to Teresa because sometimes it takes women even longer to get up enough courage and to have to feel like they have enough support to actually do that, you know, to leave an abusive situation. And it takes them trying to leave several times. It sounds like she left one time and that was it for her. And, you know, she was probably thinking about it for a while, but Mm -mm. I'm really glad that the first time she tried, she got out and she stayed out. Yeah. So basically, Scott's marriage obviously completely failed. Teresa left for Ohio. Now, before that failure of his marriage happened, when Scott was discharged from active duty, he actually enrolled in officer candidate school. But he never finished. And of course, why do you think Scott never finished? What do you think his reasoning was? Um, Something about his superiors not recognizing that he was the best in the class. And probably just, yeah, not giving him what he thought he deserved, correct? Which is exactly what you said, right? Yeah. You're right. Yes. So by his account, because he's forever the victim, he claimed that he took two days off for his grandma's funeral and that they got pissed at him and decided to mess with him from that point on out till he just decided to quit. How much you want to bet he went AWOL for two days? And they reprimanded him accordingly. I think if I dug a little bit deeper, that's exactly what would have happened. Because there's several people that were kind of like, "Uh, I do not remember it that way. So, yeah. So, again, you're going to see a pattern of things happening to Scott that is totally his fault. But he ends up making sure that it's somebody else's fault. So what, did he drop out of the program himself? Yes, he quit. Okay, he quit. He quit. He quit. And I think, I have a feeling he quit before they could kick him out. Oh, so he saw the writing on the wall and he just wanted to make it all about him. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, Another kind of situation that's similar to this with, Scott and Jobs is that before his divorce to Teresa, he was actually in the process of completing a plumber's apprenticeship, but he dropped out in the final year. Do you know whose fault that was? Was it his wife's fault? Yes, it was Teresa's fault because she left him for Ohio and she divorced him and there was no way he could go on with a plunter, a plunters, a plumber's apprenticeship because it's his wife's fault. She left. He was so close to being a journeyman. Yeah, exactly. I think an apprenticeship is like four or five years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was he was in his final year. Oh, my God. Yeah. And again, the same story as the other jobs that he held after that. There's the same story of just other people's fault. After that, he held a series of jobs. Um, He worked at a VA hospital. He worked at a center for troubled teens. He was a shuttle driver for a Ramada Inn. 
He worked at several convenience stores. And the majority of his terminations in all of those jobs involved some sort of confrontation between him and his employer about the unfairness in which he was being treated. What was unfair? No one knows. No one knows. But Oh, oh, so he was held to the same standards as yeah, everyone else. Everybody else. And yeah. he wasn't treated special because exactly. he is special. So yeah. that meant that he was being disrespected. Uh-huh. Ugh. So yeah, forever the victim. And you know what's sad? I know a lot of people like this. Yeah, I know a lot that's why I can make these comments because I know. I know yeah. exactly what it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like you you probably know an exact person just like this where it's just constant victim. Yeah, and everything yeah. is everyone else's fault. Uh-huh. And if you don't give me um if you don't give me the the top dog position uh-huh. right out the gate, then I'm going to leave because obviously yeah. you don't see who I am. Yeah. So in the six years after his divorce, um, Scott rarely made the trip to Ohio to see his kids. Teresa also rarely, and this comes as no surprise, would see any money from Scott. He would send money here and there in the first kind of six years, but it was few and far in between and nothing really like huge to note. He obviously wasn't sending what he was supposed to send. Um, because she took the kids and left him. Uh And if she wanted support, she should have stayed. Yeah. By 2001, Scott no longer saw his children. He wasn't making visits up there. He wasn't inquiring about them. Um, by 2002, she stopped receiving any money altogether from Scott and he would still call her, but it wasn't to check on her. It wasn't to check on the children. It was to threaten her with violence. Like just, he would just randomly call and just blame her for everything. She's the reason she's not getting any child support. She's the reason that she's not, you know, that he doesn't have a job. Like everything was because of Teresa, because of the divorce. I feel like at that point, just, I would have been like, okay, you know, I will sign a court order that says you don't owe me a single thing anymore. Yeah, just leave me alone. In return, don't contact me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. So at this point in Scott's life, he was drinking a lot and he obviously couldn't hold down a job. He started passing bad checks at gun shows in order to purchase guns. Because again, I told you, Scott's really into guns. And even though he didn't have any money and he couldn't hold down a job, he would still go to these shows and buy guns. But now he started just passing bad checks to buy these guns. I wonder if, was he blacklisted at any point where they had photos of him? They're like, don't sell guns to this guy. I'm sure he was because Scott kind of knew that the law was going to catch up with him eventually. So I'm sure he had like a couple of those kind of warnings. And so Scott decided, you know what, before the law catches up with me, I'm going to get my passport and I'm just going to run before I end up in jail for fraud. So he, this was his actual plan. He was going to get a passport and he was going to flee the country. Now, Before he followed through with this great plan, just like many things in his life, um, he, it wouldn't, 
it wouldn't go right, right? So Scott decided to go to Michigan to say goodbye to his mom. And while he was saying goodbye to his mom, that ended up turning into, okay, I'm going to stay here for a few days and say goodbye. Then it turned into weeks, then months, and then years. And then eventually Scott was like, it's just much easier to stay here in Michigan. And he couldn't work, though, because he why? knew. Oh, why do you think he couldn't work? Because if he got a job, then they would start garnishing his paycheck for child support. And there was no way he was going to do that. And then if he got his job, they would be able to track him down for the fraud. And there was no way he was going to do that. Oh, so he was... How much do you want to bet he planned this from the beginning? Oh, um, yeah. To use his mom like this. Uh, I th uh, Well, because he did get his passport. So I don't know. I, I really do think he was trying to to leave the country, but I, I think he just has a small town mentality that I, I think he knew he wasn't going to be able to hack it anywhere else. A passport lasts 10 years. Oh. You don't have to renew it as often as a license or an ID, and there's no address associated with it. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. know. Yeah. That would help him get off the grid. Well, and that's what exactly what he wanted to do. That's what he was going to do there in Michigan was just stay off the grid, living rent free with his mom. And in his words, and this was in an interview after he was arrested for the murders, in his words, he just, quote, leached off of them, referring to his mom and his older half brother. Yeah, because you're a fucking blood-sucking parasite. You did. Exactly. And his mom would give him money all the time, whenever he wanted. Um, he would do little jobs for her here and there, which he, like, used to, like, justify later. Like, yeah, my mom gave me money, but, like, I did little jobs for her. It's like, okay, dude, whatever. Um, but mainly, he's just stuck to himself. And even though he was living in her house, his mom and his half-brother actually report that they rarely saw him. Like, he rarely even ate meals with him. So this is how ungrateful this guy is. He's living off his mom in his mom's house, but, like, can't even show his face for a meal, you know? Or just, like, a, it, it's... Just he's just bizarre. like a basement dwelling trash goblin. Exactly. A troll. So um, this arrangement is how his life was and how it worked for about seven years. Now, since Scott was not working, he did have a lot of time on his hands. Now, to his credit, there could have been a lot more worse things he could have done with all of this time. But what Scott ended up doing to fill his time was he worked out and he worked out a lot. He would run every day about eight to 10 miles every single day. And after that, he would come home, get something to eat, and then he would get on his bike and do 30 miles. So basically Why? his whole day was just spent like working basically out. running. Yeah, running and working out. But, okay, those activities burn so many calories. How, if he wasn't eating with his family, when was he eating? Because, uh, he well, he to... got, 
you need to eat. Yeah, he got money from his mom. I know uh, he frequented Subway, and you'll find out later about that. But yeah, <laughs> he would uh, sometimes he would add swimming to his daily routine. Um, and one of his favorite swimming holes actually was the train bridge over the Menominee River. Oh. Yeah. So basically, if you think about it, Scott was this super fit loser, which you rarely see, right? Because my whole thinking is he's so unmotivated, but yet he was super motivated with exercise. Do you know what I'm saying? Usually people who don't have, who don't, can't hold a job or are alcoholics are usually like, lazy yeah but also he's pretty intelligent i mean he graduated top of his class yeah. uh-huh yeah he got accepted into officer training school which you have to be pretty impressive for um yeah not yeah. so impressive that you get kicked out though but i mean yeah. he got himself kicked out because exactly i guarantee he went awol um, oh yeah and came back I'm when they were like where the hell have you been? He's like, yeah. my grandma died. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was something like that. And probably grandma didn't even die. And he just <laughs> snuck out for a couple of days because he was bored. Grandma, are you there? If anyone from the <laughs> army calls, <laughs> you're dead. dead. <laughs> so around 2004, Scott was hatching another one of his plans. I mean, if you really want to call it that. I was going to say, none of these sound like plans, but okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. When he was not leeching off his mother or exercising, exercising or exercise, when he wasn't leeching off his mom or exercising like a weirdo, right? An obsessive weirdo. He would spend a lot of time in the wooded area of the bank along the Wisconsin side of the train bridge that we were talking about in part one. Was he like lurking on people? He wasn't lurking on people. He was kind of playing squirrel. And I'll explain that in a second. Okay. So when he would go, he would take supplies and other items with him and hide them in the woods. In a certain area. Because again, he was hatching a plan. So like Israel Keys? <laughs> no, like a sleeping bag, some clothes a knife, stone and flint, a rifle that one of the rifles, which he had fraudulently bought at a Louisiana gun show. Dude, get a duffel bag. Exactly. And he would take all of these things and he would hide them. Why? Why would he do this? Because later he would explain to police that it was in preparation for a plan. And he said, I quote, if you fail to plan, you, you can plan on fail. Yep, oh on God. failure. Yeah, it's like, okay, thanks, Scott. Yeah, that's oh the most my gosh. Thing. Yeah, uh huh. So during the time, and so that's basically why I said he was playing squirrel, because he was like a squirrel. He was finding things and hiding them. Yeah. Right? Um, on the relationship front, nothing really was happening for Scott. I know that comes a shocker to you all because he sounds like such a great guy. Oh, he's such a catch. Uh-huh. I can't but, believe he's single. <laughs> I know. After he returned 
to his hometown um, after Teresa divorced him. He did have a very short-lived relationship with another woman that wasn't named. and um, But that just really, it didn't turn out to be anything long-term. Um, and then after that, nothing. So by 2008, he hadn't been with a woman in six years. So in late 2007... Scott was shopping with his mom's money at the Family Dollar Store in Kingsford, Michigan. Ooh, fancy. <laughs> I know. Like, sign me up. It was there he met a young woman who lived near his mom's house. She was quite a bit younger than Scott, but she was still over age, right? She was nice, and Scott really seemed harmless to her. So whenever he would see her around town or at the store, they would hang out, but just as friends. Uh, later, she said she knows that she made her intentions very clear to Scott from the start that she was not interested in him and like friend zoned him right away. But Scott seemed fine with that. And he seemed fine just being her friend and just seeing her and chatting her up. Um, and every now and then during his bike rides, he would stop at her house if she was like out in front of her house and he would just stop there and talk to her and never tried anything. Um, then on July 30th, 2008, which is one day before the murders, he stopped by her house and she was outside and he asked her if he, she wanted to join him on his bike for a ride that evening. And you know, since they were friends and she had gotten to know Scott and he seemed harmless, she said she felt comfortable going with him. So she accepted the invitation and that evening they ended up riding their bikes to the train bridge and they left their bikes at one end of the train bridge and they walked across to the Wisconsin side by foot. She told police later that he led her into the woods and off of the trail and that is when he assaulted her. He put his hands under her tank top, shoved her to the ground, pulled down her pants and underwear, and then forced himself on her. I, yeah, I felt like that was coming gonna, uh -huh. because no way was he okay just being friends. No, uh-uh. Because he's such a catch. Why doesn't she want to be with me? Why would she just want to be friends? She doesn't really want to be friends. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. It's like you read the police report after this happened because that's exactly really. Oh yeah. That's exactly oh what he says. God. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so after he assaulted her and raped her, um, during the rape, she was saying she was asking him to stop. She said no multiple times. He wouldn't stop. And then once he was finished, it is almost like he went into a full-blown panic and he began pleading with her not to call the police. Please don't call the police. Please don't call the police. Please don't call the police. Because, and it was mainly because he knew he was wanted in Louisiana for fraud and in Ohio as a failure to provide child support. And so I think what he started thinking was um, he raped her, so now he would be wanted in Wisconsin for sexual assault. And so he didn't like the thought of being sent to jail as a sex offender, is what his thinking process was. So it's like almost after the rape, he suddenly felt bad, but he only felt bad because he didn't want to be caught. And as a matter if of fact... you don't want to be convicted for being a sex offender, maybe don't be a sex offender. 
Yeah, exactly. And he even started bargaining with her at one point. He's like, please don't tell the police. Please don't leave and tell the police. Uh, you can hit me with a baseball bat. I'll let you beat me with a baseball bat. Like, I would agree. I'd be like, you know what? That sounds like a fair deal. Give me the baseball bat. Let's give you one good hard crack. And then I'll go to the police station. Sound good? No, she ended up because she just wanted to get the F out of there. Oh, yeah. She ended up saying, I'm not going to tell the police. Please just let me leave, which he let her leave. And Good. obviously, because she is a smart girl, she went directly to the police. Good. Like she didn't stop. She, she didn't go home. She went directly to the police. She told them exactly who she was, who he was, where she lived. And so the police were able to go directly to Scott's house. Good. Um, now, this happened the very next morning. And so when he went home, so he let her go. She went directly to the police and he actually stayed in the woods that night. He ever he never went. Um, he never went home when he did go back home to his mom's house in the morning, though, she told him, listen, the police have been here and they want to talk to you. So instead of being like, OK, I'm going to go talk to the police. I, I know exactly what this is about. He's like, hey, can I get ten dollars? I'm really hungry. I want to go to Subway. So his mom gives him ten dollars and he heads on to Subway to order his sandwich. I mean, He's got Jared Fogel as his. Um, I, I know. I know. So why not? Yeah. <laughs> Later, he said he just wanted something to eat so he could think. And it was there at Subway that he felt like he needed another plan because he's so good at them. And here were his two choices. He said he could either turn himself in or do the shoot him up thing, which, <laughs> Yeah. Hard choice there, I, buddy. I don't understand how, I mean, logically, my, my, uh, turn yourself in or run. Yeah. What? Yeah. No, his was turn himself in or do the, and I quote, shoot him up thing. That's literally what he called it. Yeah. Oh do the God. shoot him up thing. Now. Later, when he was arrested, obviously, for what he was about to do, um, when they were asking him about the assault on the young woman, he said, he never denied it, by the way, never denied the assault. He basically explained that when he had a job and money, he could get attractive women all the time. So he didn't think she was particularly attractive. So he felt enraged when she rejected him. What? Yeah. Sir. So it's her fault. That's it is not her oh fault God. that None of he. This is how this works. Exactly. Exactly. Coming up with his little plan in Subway. Ugh, this guy. I just can't stand him. By late afternoon, after he finished his sandwich at Subway, he obviously chose to do the shoot him up thing. Uh -huh. He was walking over the train bridge. And that's when he noticed a group of teenagers enjoying their day. And he says that is when he made his decision. Oh, no. He walked to his camp on the Wisconsin side, took out all of his squirreled away survival supplies that he had been saving, and he got ready. He put on his camo pants, his camo shirt, hat, and boots. 
and then he dug up and put together his 308 caliber semi-automatic rifle that he had wrapped in plastic wrap, placed inside a rifle case, and hidden under rocks. His plan was to, and I quote, go out with a bang. Does he think he's funny? Uh, he... His interviews after he was arrested are some of the most like heartless, attention getting, just like, like infuriate, infuriate, maddening interviews I have ever, ever heard in my life. Because again, it's this guy's like, it's everybody's fault but mine. Everybody's fault but mine. Okay, so whose fault is it that he got caught? Oh, you'll find out. You'll find oh, out. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, he decided what he was going to do was shoot the train bridge to get police to get the attention of the police. And when the police arrived, he was going to shoot as many police officers as possible and then die by suicide by cop. That was his first plan. Why did he want to do that? because he wanted people to understand how hard his life was and all the pain others put him through. It's so difficult when your mom takes you into your home and completely financially supports you. I just don't know how people yeah. don't get how hard that is. Yeah, he went into this thinking, I am doing this because it's everybody else's fault that my life is so difficult. That is why I'm doing this. It's like he wanted to make this some kind of statement when there was no statement to make. Yeah, exactly. So later Scott would say that as he was getting ready, many times when he was out there in the woods with all of his little supplies getting ready, he would stop and weigh his options again. He even had doubts a couple of times like, can I really go through with it? And at one point, he claims he was about to dismantle his rifle and stop, but that's when he heard people approaching. Again, somebody, somebody else's, else's fault, fault, right? He's trying to make himself look like the victim here again. Like, I was going to stop. I, I was, started to I was totally going to put everything away, yeah, but then they were right then, there, and uh -huh. I, I had no choice. And unfortunately, these people that he heard approaching were Tiffany, Tony, Katrina and Derek, four teenagers barefoot in their swimsuits, just walking on the trail to enjoy a late summer afternoon. And because they were just kids, they were just there to do. They weren't there to mess with this guy's master plan. No, they weren't there. They were just to... trying to enjoy the summer. They trying to endure having... their last days. Yeah. Yeah. Before they, ha they remember because Tony um, was about to go off to college. Um, Brian Mort, who was in the water, was about to go off to college himself. And Tiffany and Katrina, they were going to start their senior year of high school. Like it was just kids. They were just kids trying to enjoy a summer afternoon. Yeah, and you know what I realized after we were talking about um, the episode last week is, like, literally, I am the same age as these kids. Oh, so, yeah. So, like, 
literally the same age that yeah that summer that's the summer before my senior year of high school yeah yeah I I was these kids that's nuts not yeah. quite because I wasn't allowed to go out and have fun with people but yeah, like but still I was I, the, it is my like they would be my age right now yeah that's crazy which is so crazy yeah so Scott would later say that when he heard the teens approaching he felt like he would be caught he heard their voices and he knew there were two males and two females and he was scared that one of them would have a cell phone and then he would be busted. They're going to see me and they're going to call the cops so uh-huh. I had to shoot them because I exactly. had choice. Exactly. God, when, I really hate this guy. Oh, oh my gosh. You're going to hate him even more as this goes on. When the teens were about 15 to 20 feet away from him, Scott said he jumped out onto the trail rifle pointed right at him. He mentioned that he did notice that the that they all looked startled and confused. And as soon as their eyes met the rifle, they started running. That's when Scott opened fire, resulting in the loss of three innocent lives that day. In the end, he fired off 20 shots, which would have been more, but again, his gun jammed, which wasn't his fault. By the way, he said that later, like my gun jammed, but that's not my fault. Because I was in the military and I was in yeah. officer school, so uh-huh. I know how to take care of my gun and I know how to yeah. clean it. It absolutely uh-huh. was not my fault because I yeah. take care of my guns. Yeah. I hope it was his fault because... <sighs> he's such a douchebag. I hate and this guy. I just, not just because he's a douchebag, but I, I hope it was his fault because he was so cocky about his firearm care and that's what made this stop because... I just no one no one can really tell why a gun jams it it jams for user error and because of yeah. machine error it's all kinds of things. But just, you know what? Good thing it jammed because yeah. I think he would have taken a lot more lives mm-hmm. had it not jammed. Yeah. So as the hundred law enforcement officers arrived and as they began to set the perimeter that was formed around both sides of the train bridge, and as all the homes nearby were being evacuated. Scott, the coward and failure that he did, he is, decided he was just going to retreat into the woods like a rat and hide overnight. The next morning, he came out early and surrendered to police. So basically, he spent the night in the woods and like just thought about his plan to surrender. Obviously, when he surrendered to police, they arrested him immediately, threw him right into jail. In the months after his arrest, he really seemed to get off on the attention he was getting from committing this horrible crime. He never turned down an interview with the press, even though his lawyers were like, listen, you don't have to talk to anybody. Please don't talk to anybody. But But he's getting the special treatment and attention that he always thought he deserved. Yeah. Um, he was always up for talking about like the injustices that happened to him in his life Um, and talking about what a victim he was right in a letter to his mom. He explained that he did not want to use the insanity defense saying that he just wasn't interested in playing the cuckoo card. And in another interview with a psychologist, he said, you know, you don't have to be crazy to do what I did. Just angry. It was clear that Scott Johnson was incapable of understanding the wrongness of his act. 
because he was so consumed with his own delusion of how other people wronged him. Like even the psychologists were like, this guy will never understand exactly what he did because he is so blinded by the fact that he is a victim and other people wronged him and that is why he's here. And so did he plead not guilty? He pled not guilty. Yep. What? I just don't understand. He yeah. knows exactly what he did. He knows that exactly. he killed these kids. Exactly. He knows yeah. that it's murder. Yeah. How are you not guilty? Well, have you ever heard of Nolo Contendry? Uh, Contendery. No. No contest? No. Well, kind of. So, basically, in March of 2009, Scott changed his plea from not guilty, which was his original plea, to no low contendry is what they call it there. It is a plea by wit, and probably, yeah, it's the same thing as... Um, no contest, but it is a plea by which a defendant in a criminal prosecution accepts conviction as though a guilty plea had been entered, but does not admit guilt. Okay, so um, basically they're saying, um, you know what, all of your evidence points to the fact that I did it, and I'm not saying I didn't do it, so... Yeah. Do what you want to do with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's um, very, very similar to an Alfred plea, but not exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. So prosecutors were seeking life without the possibility of parole. 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 Um, but for Brian Mort's family, that wasn't enough. And if you remember from part one, Brian Mort was the 19-year-old. It was his birthday. He was swimming in the water after Tony and um, Tiffany were shot and, and he's the one who was going to be the first one in his family to go to college. to go to college and he was shot on the Michigan side uh, of the riverbank and he died after he was taken to the hospital his family was pissed just seeking life without the possibility of parole was not enough for them they wanted him sentenced to death and the only way they could obtain that in Wisconsin was to was to be prosecuted for a federal crime. So they formed a petition signed by all the local residents and local politicians because under a federal law that was passed um, after 9-11, which said that acts of violence on railroad property, which is where Mort was, um, since the railroad's right of way extends 50 feet on either side of the train bridge, he can be prosecuted under an act of terrorism, which the sentences include the death penalty. Oh, see, I like it when stuff like this gets thrown because this is one of those loopholes that works uh -huh. in justice's favor. Mm -hmm. But also, technically, he didn't cross the bridge. So no, he wasn't on the other state side. Yeah, that's why this never went anywhere. You know, ha getting him prosecuted for a federal crime never really went anywhere, um, which is fine because this guy gets the sentence he deserves anyways. It's, it wasn't death, but you'll find out what he got. Um, at his sentencing hearing, which took place nine months after the crime and took place about an hour away from the scene of the crime, families uh, and friends of the victims filled the courtroom. 
Um, while many of the victim impact statements were dedicated to the lives lost, a few took the chance to address Scott directly. And mostly, and I love this, was just to remind him what a waste of space he was. Oh, good. As a matter of fact, Tiffany's uncle called him a useless piece of garbage, which bravo, I couldn't have said it better myself. But my favorite words came from Tony Spigarelli's father, who took the time to list the many failures of Scott's life. (laughs) I mean, this guy, like, as I was listening to, like, what he said there, at one point I was like, oh, okay. Okay, Mr. Spigarelli, maybe that's too far. But then I remembered who he was talking about. And I'm like, just keep going, keep going. You're like, I will sit here for days if you want to keep it. Just keep it coming. Exactly. So basically, he sat there and made a list. Basically, he just made a list of all of Scott's failures. Which is like everything he's ever done. Yeah. He was a failure at being a husband, a father, a son, a brother, an army soldier, a human, even failure to execute his original plan of killing police officers. So at the end of his sentence, Mr. Spigarelli said, um, and he's referring to uh, what Scott will finally be getting. He says is, and I quote, a chance to finally achieve something for the first time in his life when his cellmate Bubba says, bend over. I'm ready to lay this pipe. He will finally have achieved his master plumber's status. <laughs> Me and Tony will be laughing our asses off. Scott Johnson. <laughs> he will finally be a journeyman yeah. plumber. Yeah, exactly. And achieve something. Now, unfortunately, Scott was given the chance to speak because whatever rights, right? Yeah, I guess. And he read from a prepared speech. And through the speech, you guessed it, he blamed other people. He blamed the police and interrogators for taking quotes out of context, the psychologists for being biased, the press for getting facts wrong, also saying that it was other people's fault that he was not showing remorse because even if he wanted to show remorse, no one would believe him. What? Yeah, can you believe that? He's like, I, I can't even show. Re- it's people. No one's gonna that. believe me. So no fuck it. I won't believe- even try. Exactly. Exactly. That just he- proves you have no remorse, dude. You're not exactly. It. He also said that it was others. Pe- he, it, it was other people at fault, and that it was because he was made to live around people who were liars, gullible, arrogant, and brainwashed. So he lived with himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the audience in the court really, like, stayed quiet, gave him his time to say stuff, but they almost lost it when, during his speech, he implied that the money the families were getting from donations, you know, for funeral expenses and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Was far exceeding the actual funeral costs. So what business is that of yours? Exactly. Implying that they were greedy. And then he ended it with two quotes from Louis Armstrong's song, What a Wonderful World. And that's when everyone collectively vomits in their mouth. No, I would be like vomiting on him. Yeah. Um, I'll hold it long enough to run up to him and then just spill it all over (laughs) him. Exactly. 
goodbye you can go in your cell with your vomit filled jumpsuit yeah 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 uh, my husband likes to use the term, that guy's a puke all the time. And I've always hated when he has said that. But in this case, I feel like anytime he's saying, what a puke, I'm going to picture Scott Johnson. For because some reason, I'm Scott sorry. Scott Johnson is a puke. For some reason, the word puke, it just <laughs> sounds so much more vile to me than vomit. I don't yeah. know. Puke. Just Yeah. I can smell that word. <laughs> and then Sorry. to call and then to call someone a puke, like I never liked that before, but you know what? It fits Scott Johnson. Totally. In the end, the prosecution got the sentence they asked for. He was charged with murder, attempted murder, and sexual assault, and he was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole to be served consecutively, plus oh. 295 years on top of that. I like it. So obviously, unless he reincarnates himself, he is not, you know, like we're going to die in prison. But right? if he can't, it's everyone else's fault. It's everyone else's that fault. That he's not a Buddhist yeah, and can't yeah. come back as a tree. I don't I don't even know if they believe in reincarnation. I exactly. Remember, sorry. <laughs> today, uh, today there is a memorial that sits on the um, on a bricked over section of ground at the start of the path to the train bridge, and on it sits two benches and they're facing each other. And on either side is a monument dedicated to Tiffany, Tony, and Brian. And on it are the pictures of the three teens and a quote from a religious hymn that reads, "God moves in a mysterious way." his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And so it, that's written on the monument along with a picture of Tiffany Ann Polson, Tony David Spigarelli, and Brian Wayne Mort. That's and sweet. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so that memorial is there. Um, it took Katrina and Derek, um, after the whole incident and after being survivors of this horrific crime, um, they really leaned on each other for a long, long time. And they became seriously like best friends. I like and, that. And um, I'm just really happy because they both lost, you know, good friends. Like Katrina lost her best friend since the second grade. Yeah. And Derek lost Tony, his really good friend. And so now they had each other to lean on to kind of go through this horrific shared experience with. And they both went on to lead, you know, productive lives. Um, and I think that, you know, just everything those two went through after mm -hmm. that had to be horrible. But Scott is getting what he deserves. I, I do hope, like Mr. Spigarelli said, he has achieved that plumber's, master plumber's status. And um, he is, I hope he's hating life there in, uh, in prison. Um, you know he's hating life because none of the other inmates respect him. And yeah. none of the guards give him the respect that he deserves because he's not like all the other inmates. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just, and this is really hard. Okay, you guys? I don't care. Yeah. It's not hard enough. Yeah. So that is the end of the East Kingsford train bridge shootings. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, I had to do it. Yeah. Um, 
I think that he probably takes the prize for, for being the puke, the, <laughs> the biggest asshole that I've heard of. Actually, like, how, how about the biggest asshole puke? douche canoe trash bag fucking jerkwad yeah he's he's like that um that perpetual skid mark that you can't get to go away <laughs> no matter how much you try and clean it <laughs> yeah that too that too god maybe okay. well Anyways, that's part two, you guys. I hope you, I, I don't want to say I hope you enjoyed that case, but I mean, what do you say after I don't know. Like, stuff like this? We never this? really know what to say. I know. But like, like, I don't want to say you're welcome. And I don't want to say thank you. Yeah. But I just I mean, want to say. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Or you know what? Just there. There's that. Here you go. You there's have that. it. And that crime nugget we just laid on you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And we will see everybody or hear or talk to everybody next week. Yes. We'll uh, see, talk, hear, talk at you next week. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners, and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast, and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear, so please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other, and we'll see you next week. Bye.